Welcome to a special discussion section edition of Economics Amplified. What is discussion section? A chance for Becker Freeman Institute co-chair Kevin Murphy to sit down with economists of all backgrounds and research interests, compare notes, and unpack their unique approach to solving real-world problems using economic science. Video highlights from each discussion can be found on our website, but the uncut version of each conversation appears here in our podcast feed. In this episode, Murphy talks with Stephen Davis of Chicago Booth, exploring labor market trends from the employer side, and talking about how uncertainty over impending government policy and regulatory shifts can influence labor market trends and job creation. All right, Steve. Well, welcome. Thanks for coming. It's uh, my pleasure to talk to you. Good to be here. Always a pleasure to talk with you as well. Why don't you fill us in a little bit on your background? Like, I know you've been here at Chicago, I think, since you got out of graduate school, which was a few Uh, years ago. Yeah, okay. But of course, I was here already, so I You were here already, but that's right. Um, Well, as you said, I've been at uh, Booth for about 30 years, and uh, uh, I've worked a lot on labor market issues over the years, uh, typically from a macro perspective. I've dabbled in other areas, some with you. Um, So I basically think of myself as an applied economist um, and uh, try to understand the world around me using whatever seems like the most informative method. Much of my work is empirical in nature. Um, I like to try to keep uh, myself close to the ground and working with data seems like a uh, sound way to do that, at least for me. Okay, two things. You're, you're an economist. So what does an economist bring to studying the kind of issues that, you know, you think is important? What, you know, you're trained as an economist. What does that economics training tell you to do that you, other people might not think about it the same way? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, a tough one. You know, in part, I think it's about, um, on the macro side, thinking about not just individual optimization, firm optimization, but what do you mean by optimization? trying to pursue your best ends, sub, trying to pursue your objectives subject to whatever constraints you face and given the way you see the world, given the information you have. So that's kind of the problem for an individual uh, household or business or worker. So let me stop you for a minute. So you're, 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 so you're, you're interested in explaining the world, I think. We've, we had a lot of people through and everybody seems, that's the Chicago theme, right? We're all right. about explaining the world. but. You're trying to explain the behavior of, I think, really two groups in the population. Firms on the one hand, employers might think of in the labor market, right. and employees. And the economic, how does the economic approach inform how you think about firms and workers? Well, it's, it's in part what I just said. It's, it's uh, what, what do you think their objectives are? What are they trying to achieve? What are their constraints, including the market conditions, uh, the policy environment they operate in? What information do they have? That's kind of each each household, each employer, you know, has those sets of issues in its mind when it's trying to achieve its objectives. But then they also come together and interact, and they can interact in a number of subtle ways. Sometimes through market mediated transactions, and sometimes through other ways. Uh, and that's you know that that gets to the concept of what's in equilibrium where each agent is doing, uh, trying to pursue its own objectives, each employer, each worker is trying to pursue its own objectives, but they interact uh, with each other in markets and other ways, and, and that can be quite complex. So I think economists have, for a long time, relative to other social scientists, 
try to understand how those equilibrium interactions work out and not just the uh, objectives of individual agents. Okay, so let me, let me try to put that in the way I see what you're saying and see if I'm, I'm getting this right. I mean, you, you call yourself a macroeconomist, which I think means you're really interested ultimately in maybe some big picture questions, like how fast are we gonna grow? What's the employment rate gonna be? Are wages growing? Are firms doing well? Which firms are growing? You know, kind of big picture issues, but to understand those big picture issues, it's helpful to look at the individuals, the pre what the people are doing, why they're doing it, what the firms are doing, why they're doing it. I think that's been called the micro approach to macroeconomics, which again, I think yeah. is a Chicago tradition in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's an excellent way to put it. Um, and the, the micro approach to macro, I think that's a theme that goes through much of my research over my entire career. And you, so the, these macro, and, and I guess that's, that's to me where economics really separates itself from, I think a lot of other social sciences and, and really a lot of other approaches, because there's many people who are forced to focus, many sciences are focused on the individuals and focus on what, how do individuals behave, why do they do what they do, it's psychology, philosophy, whatever areas you want to think about. And then other groups focus on the overall aggregate of what's going on in the social sphere. I think economics is really all about how do you get from one to the other and, and, and the integrated view of how those two things fit. And I, when I see your research, I see it very much in that light. It's like yeah. big picture questions from a micro perspective and, and how do the micro elements lead to the answers to those big picture questions. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's right. And a good example of this in an area I've contributed to, but, but many others have done tremendous amount of work, really over the course of my career and starting a little bit earlier is, you know, what, what leads to unemployment? In particular, what leads to frictional unemployment? So a lot of my early work was trying to measure, in some sense, the, the first level of the frictions at the employer side. You know, why do jobs blow up? What does it mean for workers? You know, what determines uh, whether you can easily find another job when you lose one? And so these very much involve things that are happening on the ground for individual workers and businesses, but then they also interact to determine the overall unemployment rate and fluctuations in the unemployment rate over time. And, you know, I, I happened to go to graduate school at, at uh, a time when there, I think, where there was a tremendous um, wave of innovation on the theoretical side. In, in terms of understanding frictional unemployment by guys like Dale Mortensen and Peter Diamond and Chris Pissarides. And you know, that had a big effect on me. And early in my career, I started thinking about, okay, but how would I go about getting a better handle on these things empirically? Um, you know, that led to my early work with Haltwinger, trying to measure the pace at which jobs blow up at the employer level. By blow up, I mean they disappear, the worker loses his job, is thrown into the unemployment pool. And that's very much, uh, as you described, kind of a micro approach to macro questions. Okay, but it's also, it differs a little bit. For example, I've also done a lot of work on unemployment, but I have approached it mostly as a labor economist with a focus on the individuals and how the individuals deal with unemployment and how fast they find jobs and how likely they are to lose jobs. I think a large part of what separates your research from really most of the research I know of in, in unemployment is a real micro study of the employer side of that equation. That is, 
that the drivers on the employment side, and obviously the labor market, like all markets, has buyers and sellers. I mean, in this case, the sellers are the workers selling their services to the employers who are the buyers. And what's sort of funny about labor economics, it's largely a study of only the workers. And not very much really talks about employers. And I, I think that's really the value your work with Hall Twanger, but also the value of much of the more recent work you've done has brought a much richer employer perspective, perspective about employers to studying these labor market issues and what's driving the decision making of employers. And I would like to talk to you about some of that today, but to me, I see that as like the real biggest innovation in, in your work. Does that seem fair? Yeah, that seems fair. And, um, you know, it's, to a considerable extent, economists and probably other social, social scientists go where the data are. And I think the data, the kind of really rich data on the micro side became more readily available for workers and households than it did for employers. Uh, and I think that accounts for what you said earlier, that there was, there was already 30 years ago a very rich body of research looking at kind of the micro approach to big picture labor market questions from the worker and household side. And, that was much less developed from the employer side. So then you and Haltwanger got data on actual firm histories over time and whether they were growing and whether they were going out of business or they were starting up. And right. a lot of work I remember that you did, and this is going back many years ago, was about business formation and the importance of new businesses and the firm death process. and. You know, you have firms being born, firms dying, and you had firms growing and shrinking, and that was the employer side of, right. of driving unemployment. Right. And, and so much of what your early work did was to document that and how important each of those things are. Let's talk a little bit about why that's relevant in today's world. And okay. so how does how, why do we need to understand what's going on with employers to answer some of the questions that are out there today maybe you can even tell me what you think those questions are and then yeah. talk about why this employer perspective is important well let me start with a couple of background observations i think you know it's well known among economists and you know people more generally i think have some sense that labor market outcomes have not been what we'd like especially for people kind of the lower rungs of the earnings distribution, less education, less obvious credentials. Uh, you can see this most dramatically in the um, decline, which has been going on for decades now, in the employment rates of, of less educated men, especially younger, less educated men. So what, what, would, what would you say, like if somebody said, well, what do you mean, now? what's the decline? If you, what would be a number that you'd throw out there as something that would yeah. be? 10, 12, 15 percentage point decline in the share of, say, high school educated men who are uh, not working, not going to school. Not you mean the decline in the fraction that are, uh, an increase in the fraction that are not working yeah, yeah, or in school. Yeah. So yeah, I got my signs, signs backwards there. So um, I don't remember what the exact numbers are, but you can see this basically going back at least to the late 1970s. Um, and what's interesting is, you know, in the last 15 years, you start to see the same patterns among women. So we think of ourselves and our society as one that's become, um, increasingly welcome to women in the labor force, you know, since, you know, basically the World War II. And in many senses, that's true. Um, but for whatever reason, for less educated men, and again, more recently, for less educated women, we see those trends reversing. 
that's pretty worrisome, and I, to me anyway. And he asked me what 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 I see some of the big questions, and it it's worrisome both from uh, the perspective of economic performance, but also uh, from the perspective of social cohesion. People feeling like um, they have a stake in society, um, and for many people, especially for men, um, and increasingly for women, a big part of having a stake in society is being gainfully employed. So, you know, so I talked to Jim Heckman a while back, and we talked about uh, people being engaged with the economy or engaged in society. And I think that's kind of the same theme you're talking about right. here, which is, you know, it's it, when people talk about economic inequality, they talk about income inequality, but you'd say it goes beyond that. You got to think about engagement. That you know, it's 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 important how much you make, but it's also probably at least as important whether you're engaged in the economy and. And uh, so, now what about, what about, there's other issues out there today, right? So one, one issue that we want to talk about is, well, what's going on with low-skilled men, low-skilled women, probably more so men than women, but increasingly women all as well, I guess is right. the way to think about it. Young workers in particular, right. particularly the young, less-skilled workers again. So that's one aspect, what's going on with particular segments. What about just the economy as a whole? Just the, you know, we hear about slow growth. We've, we, we've, we've now reached this slow growth situation where not just for those groups, but the economy as a whole doesn't seem to be, at least according to some people's measures, performing as well as it could or it has been or relative to yeah, some. I think, I think it's, it's pretty hard to escape the conclusion that growth's been slow. Um, and not just since the financial crisis in 08, 09. So, so I want to I want to draw out two just factual observations about which I think there's not much dispute now. One is that for whatever reason, the recovery from the last recession, the financial crisis and the recession, has been quite anemic. Um, you see that most strikingly in terms of the employment growth numbers we talked about earlier, employment rates, but just in terms of GDP growth and things like that, which in some sense is harder to measure. But even on the basic things like what fraction of the working age population is engaged. Uh, as we talked about earlier, it's very low. What, what gets less attention is the economy was already underperforming in many respects relative to it, kind of the standards in the previous decades, at least since 2000. And again, it's tied into these um, deteriorations in employment trends that we talked about earlier. They seem to have worsened about around 2000. So it's not just that we've had a weak recovery from the recession, but we've had at least 15 years a pretty subpar performance, both in terms of labor market outcomes, uh, wage growth, employment rates, and but also slow productivity growth, slow growth overall. So 15 years is a long time to have a, a slowdown. <laughs> it makes you think there's something um, um, rather fundamental and uh, underlying uh, that underlies uh, that slowdown and makes you worried about it. Okay, so we have prospects for low less skilled, low income individuals, not just in terms of their earnings, but also in terms of employment. And we have this potential slow growth, or reality of slow growth maybe is a better way to put it, that we've had. So let's talk a little bit about what you think might be part of the story there, particularly the part of the story related to your research. I think we've heard in previous installments discussions of what's going on 
long-term trends in labor demand and things like that. But let's talk about the employer side of things. What's, yeah. what, what in the employment picture would you say is important for thinking about so, yeah, those two so, issues? So, and, you know, so let this, let's draw together some of the strands of the discussion. So we talked about slow growth overall in the economy. We talked about particularly disappointing performance um, of labor market outcomes for less educated, uh, less skilled, younger people in particular. So on the employer side, you know, one thing I've been working on in recent years is trying to understand, well, to what extent are these disappointing outcomes on the, on the worker side and in the overall economy tied to developments on the employer side? And I, I think they're tied. This is very much an area of active research, so you know, we, don't, we don't have convincing, complete answers yet. But let me tell you about some of the things that I've, I've done and that worry me. So one, one thing that I documented in um, recent work, again, with Haltwanger, uh, there's been a tremendous kind of slowdown in both the pace at which jobs and capital move from one business to another, um, and also a, a slowdown in the pace at which workers move across jobs. So we kind of call this labor market fluidity to capture kind of both sides of this. The, the reallocation of jobs and capital across businesses and the reallocation of workers across a given set of, of jobs. Um, so, you know, there's, this is a complicated phenomenon. You and I have chatted about this before. There's some silver linings associated with this kind of slowdown in, in uh, reallocation of jobs and workers, one of which is you might expect less frictional unemployment. And some of my work about five years ago finds evidence that one reason unemployment came down you know, basically since the early 1980s, and even now I think one reason why it's kind of surprisingly low relative to the somewhat uh, moderate growth setting is frictional unemployment is down. So that's all the- Why do you say, why do you, what do you mean by frictional unemployment is I down? mean just the fact that if, you lose, if your job disappears and you gotta go out and find another job and it takes you a few weeks or months, but you eventually get a roughly comparable job, that process doesn't happen instantaneously. So if you slow down the pace at which jobs are disappearing, there's gonna be less of these people kind of flowing through the, the labor market, or they can think of this bathtub model. Okay. You know, fewer guys are flowing in, so fewer guys are flowing out, and kind of the overall level of water in the bathtub's a little bit lower. But importantly, you're not saying that frictional unemployment has gone down because it's easier to find a job than it used to be. It's not, it's, it, I mean, the, the amount of frictional unemployment is, you know, think of those as the guys between jobs. Right. That's a function of how many people are getting pushed into that pool and how quickly they're able to leave. And you're not, so what's going on on each of those Yeah, so, well, again, in the last seven or eight years, we've seen a big decrease in the outflow rate okay, from the so unemployment. That, so if you wanted to say one of the problems we have is it's actually harder to get out of that pool. If I'm unemployed. It's harder to get out of that pool. And, but I wanted to say more about that. Okay. It's not just, so I think the, the fact that it's harder to get out of the pool is symptomatic of this broader decline in you know, this labor market fluidity. The idea that you can change jobs or change careers or occupations when it seems economically advantageous to do so. Now, going back to the kind of worker side literature that we talked about earlier, there's a lot of evidence in that literature. Our friend and colleague Bob Topel has written one of the important papers in this area that says, you know, especially for younger people, one of the ways you build a career that you kind of 
move up the, uh, the job ladder, increase wages over time, is you kind of move around from job to job. Uh, not everybody, but often when you're young and you figure out what you're good at, you accumulate skills along the way. If for some reason you need to move from one city to another, it's fairly, it might, is it hard or easy to find a job? Well, I think what's happened is it's become harder to make those kind of transitions, whether you're in the unemployment bathtub and you're trying to find another job, or whether you're kind of in a mediocre job now and you'd like to find a better job, or you'd like to move up your career, or even if you just want to negotiate a better, okay. uh, better deal with your employer. Okay, so I'm gonna steal some of your language that you've used over the years, which is job creation. That is one of the ways in which a worker who has a job finds a new one, or one of the ways in which an unemployed worker finds a new a job, is there's a job created. That is, there's this job creation process. Right. And tell me a little bit about what's been going on with this job creation. Are you saying job creation is slower than it used to yeah, be, so not I, as active? That's, that's one part of what I lumped into the heading of labor market fluidity. Maybe that's too broad and grand a term. So, as you said, you know, for a long time I've been engaged in the business of just trying to measure the rate at which new jobs are being created in the economy, at the industry level, at the regional level, and so at the firm size level, and so on. And that, it's interesting, that the, the pace at which that has been happening has been declining for about 30 years. Um, and, and declined a lot. It's, it's declined a lot. It's like and, half of what it used to be. Right, and uh, that's part of this decline in fluidity. It's part of what makes it harder to get out of the unemployment bathtub when you're in it. And it's, hard of what, it's part of what I think constricts the career development opportunities, especially for people who don't enter the labor market with great credentials from the outset. Okay, let me, let me, let me try to pick up on something you said there because we, before we talked about young people. And if I think about this decline in fluidity or this decline in new job creation, that's going to be particularly problematic for young people who really depend on those new jobs disproportionately. They, some of what they do is go to an old firm, but a lot of what they do is go to new opportunities that are out there, both job to job and when they're entering the labor market. Right. So you, I guess you'd say it's not surprising that in this environment where the rate at which jobs are being created has been slowing, that might be particularly difficult for low, less educated workers, less skilled workers, young workers, who really depend on that job shopping. They don't, they don't go and get a, uh, an MD degree and then find a job in the hospital. They're, they're looking around the economy trying to find a lot of what they're doing in their early human capital development, to bring in another term we use all the time, is in the market, out there in the workplace. And this reduced fluidity is going to hurt those people. I think that's exactly right, and uh, that's, that's a theme I've been pursuing in recent research. I think the jury is, I'm, I'm fairly persuaded it's important, but in the larger profession I think the jury is still out to some extent on uh, just how um, harmful this decline in fluidity is for younger workers in particular. So this is something that affects workers, but maybe a lot of what's going on is actually on the firm side of things, I guess, is the, is the insight you're bringing to this, right. this equation. So, so we have that, let's say, the decline in fluidity. And now, what about, one part of that is new business formation. What's been going on with new business formation? 
uh, it's, it's down tremendously. So I just looking at the numbers uh, before the before we chatted this morning. So if you go back to the early 1980s, I'll give you a, I'll give you a statistic, and these are fresh in my memory, so I think they're accurate. If you go back to the early 1980s, and you say, well, what fraction of all workers are at businesses that are less than five years old? It's 18%. If you look now, it's about 8%. That's an enormous decline. Less than half. It's less than half. So wow, that's a, that's a huge decline. And, and, and again, those new businesses, they're disproportionately gonna be hiring young workers. They're disproportionate, they, they do, they, yeah, they, they, this is not my work, but other work shows they disproportionately hire young workers. As you said, that's not really a surprise, but, but it's nice to confirm that in the data. Yeah, this decline's worrisome for a number of other reasons as well. We know that, you know, a very small fraction of these young firms eventually grow up to be very important big firms. And, you know, you worry that if you have cut the, the, the share of economic activity accounted for by these young firms in half, that we might get fewer really big successful firms 5, 10, 15 years down the road than we would have had in an environment with more of this kind of ferment and uh, activity by younger firms. You know, that's much more speculative. More people are, are, are trying their hands at it, and you know, chances are you might miss what would have been a great opportunity if that business never got started. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what might be behind each of these two things. One is just the overall decline in fluidity the other might be what's going on with just biz new business formation. And finally, let's think about just the rate at which firms are growing in general, whether they want to bring on new workers, even if I'm already got 200,000 workers, I'm already a big firm. So I know you've done some research in these areas. So let's talk about first sort of those impediment, what, what are some of the impediments out there? What, you, I think you've called them headwinds, that we're, we have headwinds out there against right. job formation, against employment. Right. Where, where, what would you point to? So for, let me state first, it's a complex phenomenon. And I don't think there's a single answer. There's probably not even just two or three answers. And some pieces of it are benign. So, or at least you know, not things that are under our immediate policy control, like just the slowdown in population growth and the aging of the population. Those things by themselves are probably an important source of the slowdown in new business formation. So let's acknowledge that and, and uh, but kind of set that aside. I think there are a lot of other things that are going on where it's kind of self-inflicted headwinds, not, not something out of our control, um, but self-inflicted headwinds. And, and here, this is an active area of research for me and others, and so we don't have um, full answers yet. But I think about things like the uh, dramatic expansion of occupational licensing restrictions at the state and local level. So uh, tell, tell me what you mean. What's a, I, what, would be, what would be your headline example of an occupational licensing restriction? Headline example is if I want to cut somebody's hair or if I want to color their nails or color their hair or braid their eyebrows. Or groom All their these dog. things that you and I or do groom often. Their dog. Or groom their dog. Um, you know, in the dog grooming, not, not everywhere, but the other ones I talked about, pretty much every state in the, in the country, you can't legally engage in that kind of activity without getting a license, uh, meaning the requirements for a, for a license <coughs> to practice employment in that occupation. 
And these license requirements are often quite onerous. Um, in the case of cosmet cosmetologists, you know, they, they essentially involve a long apprenticeship at often low pay, working for somebody who already has a license, plus taking courses, plus passing a test. Um, and the, the, you know, the dog groomers is another one. In many states, you can't legally work as a dog groomer unless you've obtained a license from the state. So these are basically entry barriers um, to occupations. And there are hundreds of occupations that have these kinds of restrictions in one or more states. Uh, just to give you an idea of the absurdity of these things and to, and to let you know what's really, I think, behind most of them, it, it takes about 10 times as long um, in many states to get a license to cut hair and be a, you know, clean and color hair and that kind of thing as it does to become an emergency medical technician. Now, when you think about, well, where would we really like to be sure that somebody's qualified well, well, what's the quality? They can quality? take care of me if I have a heart attack. They can but take they care of me if I have a heart attack. I need my hair cut. And I'm not really in a position to make an informed, considered decision when I'm having a heart attack about, well, is this the right guy to take care of me? Okay, so I think what's really behind these things are basically incumbent protection devices in most cases. You get, you get a group, they lobby their state legislature, they make some arguments that might have some merit but they wrap it up and blow it up and pretty soon you've got, well, nobody can practice this important profession, dog grooming, tree trimming, um, <clears throat> um, language interpreter, there are just hundreds of these things. So you've, and given those types of restrictions, you would think they would be the most onerous at the end of the day for the people at the low end of the skill spectrum, the people who don't have as good of contacts, who don't have a leg up in getting in those businesses in the first place. Right, and it ties into, it ties into a couple of the things we talked about earlier. First, it slows down business formation because it means if you want to open up your own barber shop, if you want to start your own tree trimming company, your own dog grooming company, you've got to jump through a lot more hoops just to get in the game, okay? And if you're somebody who doesn't have a lot of resources, doesn't have great credentials, so you're not gonna get a bank loan to start this business up, that may be enough to just stop you completely. Because these are upfront costs. That these you are have. upfront costs, and, and starting the business is risky. You don't know whether it's gonna work out. So that's kind of on the business formation side, which we talked about earlier. At the same time, it also impedes, rather obviously and directly, the ability of people to move across occupations. If I try and being a state. barber, I find yeah. I'm not very good. I cut I a guy's ear off and I say, I better do something else. Uh, maybe that's not the best chosen example. Yeah, that wouldn't but, be good. <laughs> but, so again, it, it, it directly undermines two things we talked about earlier, the business formation process and the ability to move around this job hopping. Um, <clears throat> so there's been a huge expansion there. Uh, another area, or two, two areas that, I, that are well, let me just talk about what they are. There was basically in the 70s, 80s, and 90s a, a significant expansion of the traditional employment at will doctrine uh, in the common law in the United States. And this also happened mostly at the state level. And by, by employment at will, I mean basically unless you have a, a contract that there says was an otherwise. Expansion of that doctrine? Or no, uh, there, there was, was an erosion. An erosion. Of, erosion of it. So okay, this, took, this took place mainly in the form of. Um, state courts saying, well, we have to have an exemption for this, you know, a fair dealing exemption, 
or we have to have a, or a public policy exemption. You know, the, it's a public policy that we don't want um, people to be uh, fired under these conditions. So but it's isn't, no, it, isn't it obvious that if you make it harder to fire employees, that'll be good for employees, that they more likely to have a job, well, right? Well, it's, like, it's not obvious. Well, uh, I was hoping you'd say that, but you know, I thought I'd throw you a softball. You know, there's, yeah, thanks. It's, it's certainly beneficial to some people who already have jobs. So if you've got a job and, you, and you're kind of on the margin of, maybe, you're, maybe your employer's thinking about getting rid of you, but now you have this extra protection, so the employer's gonna have to incur a bunch of legal costs to get rid of you, well, you might benefit from it. Um, and certainly maybe early on, up front, the, the immediate impact might be to benefit workers. Because yeah. a lot of people have a job and you're going to make that job more secure. Right. And, but over time, you know, this, we talked about earlier, there's young people flowing into the market and some of them have kind of criminal backgrounds. Some of them don't look so good on paper. Employer looks at them and says, okay, if I hire this guy and he doesn't work out, it's going to be costly for me to get rid of him. Oh, so let me focus on a couple things because I, I think what you said is the, the First off, I, I, put, I put in what looks like worker protection. It's, it's here, it makes it harder to get rid of workers. You'd say, well, geez, that's great for workers. They have more rights there they're suddenly. And you say, well, wait a minute, there's, there's a downside to this, which is if it's gonna be harder to get rid of you, it's gonna be more reluctant, employers are gonna be less reluctant, more reluctant to hire you at the beginning. Right. Now, and that's not gonna affect everybody equally. No, that's, that's gonna exactly affect right disproportionately the young right. who don't yet have a job. Those who depend on turnover to find where they belong. That is right. people who are more likely to, you know, have to try and try jobs, you know, kind of find your career by trial and error, which again, I would think is again, disproportionately young, probably disproportionately less skilled. That is the groups right. that Maybe they, they, they're not quite sure. They, they just got out of high school. They don't know what they want to do, where they're going to end up. And so this seeming protection actually might be an impediment for these people. Yeah, and I would like. add to your list, it also disproportionately affects people who have some kind of black mark on their prior history, whether it's a brush with the law um, or a documented case of, of um, malperformance on a previous job. Um, even injudicious comments on the internet these days can get you in trouble um, with an employer who's screening intensively. So people want, you, what you're saying, if it's hard to get rid of people, you're going to screen more intensively before you hire them, which is going to mean, I may be a great guy, I just look bad on paper, well I'm in trouble now because exactly. I'm, right. I'm never going to get the chance. Whereas. In the old, in, absent these restrictions, more employers would say, hey, I'll give him a chance, and if he doesn't work out, well, he doesn't work out. Right, and there's one more thing that's important in the mix here. So we've been talking in the last couple of minutes about the incentive side of things. Employers have, I think, partly because of the erosion of employment at will, but for a variety of other reasons as well, employers have more incentive now to screen intensively on the hiring margin. In addition, some here's of it the, is they can, can do well, it that's too. The, that's why I was just coming. The, 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 the other piece is that the ability to screen, the technology for screening has improved a lot. We now, employers now have much easier access to large databases on prior contact with the criminal justice system. 
uh, prior credit history. Um, there's a kind of a burgeoning industry on personality testing. Um, Ooh, I'm in trouble there. I yeah. Think, you know? Well, we, we might both be in trouble, so we're kind of lucky we got in the door before they these things were uh, um, becoming commonplace. So, so if I can put together the two pieces, you have you have mostly on the regulatory side and the legal side, an increasing set of incentives to be picky, to be choosy on the hiring margin. And then you've got these technological developments, the information revolution, that have made it easier and more effective for employers to do that. So the consequences, exactly you were talking about before, people who don't look good on paper, including electronic paper here, they have a much harder time getting a foot in the door and also a harder time kind of doing that job shopping activity, building the career uh, that we talked about earlier. And I think these developments which are happening very much on the employer side of the labor market are part of the reason why we see such weak performance at the lower ends of the skill distribution and among younger people on the worker side. But isn't, I mean, isn't part of this the usual story that it's these kinds of regulations that get adopted and come in come in because they have a very clear beneficiary. That is, the person who has the job and all those people who have the job say, geez, this is a good idea because it's going to make it my job more secure. And then there's this very diffuse effect out there, which is, well, geez, that's going to feed back in this kind of make people less likely to hire, but nobody knows. You can't really see that. You, you can see the guy who kept his job because you had this restriction and said, well, geez, these 400,000 people benefit because they were able to keep jobs that they might have otherwise lost. Nobody can find the guys who didn't get a job because they right. were never hired. It's just, it's, it's, right. it's the usual story, right? We, we, we have, you know, visible beneficiaries and invisible. Yeah, and some, sometimes you can losers. identify the, the, some of the losers with a lot of hard work. So you can look to see whether consumers pay more for services of a given quality when you have occupational licensing restrictions. But that's a lot harder to do in, in a convincing way than just look at some guy who says, my job's protected. Right, politically it's harder to get that up on TV and say, look, look, what, look, look the good I've done. Like, Here's who, here, here, Joe, you're going to benefit from my rule. You know, these are the people that are going to benefit from my rule. And this bad thing wouldn't happen to you if we had had my rule in place at the time. And so the benefits of each of these things are probably more easily demonstrated than the costs. Because otherwise it's like, well, why are we doing this stuff? Now the other part is incumbents versus new entrants. And most of these things seem to be skewed to incumbents. Again, you know, I, I would think of it like, you know, there's a bunch of barbers out there. They're in a fight hard to get these restrictions that'll help them. Right. There's a ton of people who might someday decide to become a barber, but none of them really know who's gonna become a barber. Why are they gonna fight against it? Right, and there's, there's one, you know, just as a kind of a graphic illustration of the point you're making, there's one area where we see this fight going on in a very visible way, and it's between traditional taxi drivers and Uber drivers. Yes. And the politicians who are in some, some respects in bed with the taxi companies. And there's a tremendous amount of resistance in many municipalities, in countries, this isn't just a US phenomenon, in many other countries to 
uh, Uber and similar companies because they're undermining um, the, the incumbency protections that traditional taxi drivers have enjoyed in, in many cities. And, and that's a battle that's playing out um, where you do see uh, kind of the Uber drivers kind of have very clearly different interests as the entrance than the incumbent taxi drivers and, and particularly the, the guys, the taxi companies okay, who own the licenses. Okay, so what we're talking about, we're starting to transition into where I wanted to go anyway. But so first off, what we talked about a, a, just a bit ago were labor market policies that might be impeding labor market fluidity and labor market growth in general, than employment and the ease with which people find jobs and things like that. But those are labor market policies. Right. Your Uber example is starting to get into a broader set of policies. It's somewhat labor market because it's about taxi drivers and Uber drivers. But I think some of your other research says part of what's driving these labor market outcomes isn't really just labor market policies. It's right. policies much more broadly. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so, and, and this is, it's a hard thing to nail down. Um, so let me give some kind of 10,000 foot level numbers. 20,000 if you 20, want. 20,000 foot, just, just to try to see why this might be important. It, there's been an enormous expansion of just the overall federal regulatory apparatus in recent decades, and um, the we'll put the graph up of the put the graph up. Okay, so the graph says something like if you just take the number of pages it takes to to write out what the federal regulations are, and fortunately for link to the Bible. Fortunately, the research for researchers, the, the federal government does this exercise on an annual basis. They say, let's just write down what all our regulations are, and um, how many pages is it's that a, now? Well, it's, it's equivalent to like take 350 copies of the King James Bible and stack them up, okay? That's how long the federal regulatory code is. Okay, so so probably would more than my, all the books you have in your office, I think. It would take up my whole shelf, basically. Take okay. up your whole shelf. And you know, an, another way to make the same point, and this is based on somebody else's work, not mine, if you just tell a computer to read the entire uh, federal regulatory code, you certainly couldn't do it yourself, and count up the number of instances where you see must, shall, cannot, these are the commandments. Require, these How are the commandments. commandments How the... many commandments are there? So you there know, were there, 10 in the We Bible. remember 10 in the old days. Well, there's more than a million such commandments in the federal regulatory code. Now, those, those are just numbers to give you a sense of the scale, um, but when you think about it, on the ground, businesses have to they have to abide by these regulations, or they're supposed to. They have to know what they are. They have to figure out what they are. They have to they have to incur costs to to figure out what they are and to try to abide by them to comply with them. Those costs. Now we're getting back to the business formation issue. Those costs have a fixed. There's a fixed cost in the, in the economist language. There's a fixed cost element to them. Um, you have to learn about them, you have to put in compliance processes and so yeah, on. But also, it's, it, again, for an incumbent, they maybe have a lot of that knowledge already. So it's, yeah, it's exactly. already, it's durable. It's, it's, it's durable knowledge. So, so this does become effectively another type of entry barrier to new businesses. And I, it's, I think it's probably an important factor behind that slowdown in young business activity so even though that we talked about out of those earlier. million commandments, a lot of them may not apply to them. They don't know which ones don't apply to them. It's very, they got to, how do you learn 
all the things I need to do to comply with the regulations. They don't know, and it's even a little worse than that. Sometimes nobody knows. It's, it's a matter of discretion to the in the hands of the regulator. So you read these stories about the EPA telling somebody, you know, you can't build something here because there's a puddle over there two months out of the year and it's a wetland, you know, that kind of thing. Well, uh, so there's, there, there is both the scale of it and then the scale and the complexity of itself is a source of uncertainty for businesses. So, okay. and we, you know, economic theory tells us that uncertainty can deter investment activity, including new business formation. So there are many dimensions to this. So there's two things. One is, it's a diff, it makes it more difficult for everybody, established and unestablished, but it disproportionately makes it more difficult for the unestablished businesses, right. the new businesses, or right. businesses that want to grow or go into new lines of business. It's just, that whole dynamic, it, it's a dampener on dynamism. The right. ability of people right. to either start or adjust. And so, and so then let me put another thing on the table. There's another piece of it, which is our tax code. What I talked about before didn't have anything to do with the tax code explicitly. So if you look at the tax code, you know, that's, uh, that's another, I don't know exactly how many Bibles, dozens and more Bibles in terms of just writing out the federal tax code. That's also grown extremely, much more complicated and much more extensive in the last 30 years or so. Um, and so, the, and the tax code itself, if you think about it, is often used quite consciously as an instrument of regulatory control. So we have all these special tax breaks in the personal income tax system, in the, in the business income tax system, designed to discourage or promote certain activities. You think of that as part of the overall compl uh, complex regulatory landscape. And as you talked about before, it raises costs for everybody, but disproportionately so for actual and potential new businesses, slowing down the, the dampening the dynamism process, which feeds back into the labor market through the channels we talked about before. So again, even though these policies maybe have nothing to do directly with the labor market, because they affect the business decisions that firms are making, that feeds back to the labor market. Because if somebody right. says, boy, the regulations are just too complicated, I'm not gonna start that new product or go into that new line of business or maybe open a new business, that's gonna affect the workers that potentially would have been hired to exactly. do those jobs. And again, given it's a new job or a new opportunity, disproportionately young and, and workers in those other categories. So that's about, so we've talked about a couple things on top of the direct labor markets, we've talked about regulations about how businesses conduct themselves, and then we've talked about the tax code. Then you've done some other work that says, well, there's one thing about just how extensive these policy interventions are. There's another impact when there's uncertainty about what these policies are going to be. And, and can you talk a little bit about that, your policy, work on policy uncertainty? Yeah, and this is actually something you and I chatted about with Gary Becker uh, five, five years ago or so. And um, so let me back up a bit, I think, uh, and trace out a little bit the evolution of this. I think all of us had the sense that you, you, you Gary, and I, you know, around 2010, we were looking at the world around us. We'd just gone through a major financial crisis. There was. Uh, major new uh, legislation to reform the healthcare system. Um, there were crises in Europe and it just seemed like there was an awful lot of uncertainty in the overall economic environment. And that much, not all of that uncertainty could be traced to 
uh, deliberate policy decisions and policy directions. And um, that we didn't know what the policies were going we, to be. We didn't know what exactly they'd be, and, we, and even when we knew what they'd be, they were so new or different, we didn't know what their effects would be. Right. So, you know, we wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, and, um, and you know, it just got me to thinking about the topic, and I was a little dissatisfied with, um, I'd say, the nature of the evidence in the Wall Street Journal piece. Not that I thought we were wrong, but all the evidence that we had at that time was impressionistic and anecdotal. There really wasn't any systematic body of evidence to say, is the policy environment more or less uncertain now than it was at some point in the past? Um, and if it is, does that have any effects? And so thinking about that, and then I... We had some economics that would kind of push you in that direction. Yeah, the, our economics said probably so, that it would have some harmful effects. But, you know, even, I'd say at that time, even, even, the, even the claim that we were living in a period with high policy uncertainty was somewhat controversial. Yes. That's no longer controversial. That's kind of like, I think, the work we've done and the others have done have kind of said, look, the last several years in the United States, in Europe as well, really are um, somewhat exceptional in the extent of policy-related uncertainty. There's still lots of uh, debate about, well, why has that happened? Does it matter much? If so, how does it matter? And so on. But that, that um, thinking uh, you know, kind of led me to, in some work with Nick Bloom and Scott Baker, to try to systematically measure policy uncertainty in the economy. We can talk about how we do that if you'd like. And, and then that lays the groundwork for assessing its effects. So in other words, you, you're, you're gonna say, look, I have this hypothesis. Uncertainty about policy affects the economy. And I'll just lay out one of the ones we thought about. Well, I'm thinking about making an investment. Maybe it's a long-term investment, and how profitable that investment's gonna be is gonna depend on what policies are followed. Right. Well, or the kind of investment I want to make. Maybe I'm sure I want to invest, I just don't know whether I want to do A or B depending on what the policy is going to be. Well, right. if that uncertainty is going to get resolved a year from now, well, I probably want to wait. I probably don't want to put this irreversible investment in place until I got a better idea of what the world's going to look like. And that was the our theory. So the first thing you did as an economist said, well, heck, I got to be able to measure this uncertainty. So you, Nick, and, 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 and others went out and actually did the hard work of measuring uncertainty. And like most things in economics, it's, it's not exactly like, you know, measuring the speed of light or something like that. It's, it's a little less precise than that, but nonetheless, I think you guys did some creative things to, and you were actually able to show that policy uncertainty had changed both at various points in time as ver events happened, but kind of trended upward over this period of time. Right. You're getting higher and higher even on average, not just in specific right. episodes. Right, and I think that's the part I said earlier. I think that part of the overall thesis is no longer controversial. Right, so we got the facts that say uncertainty's up. Right. We have an economic theory that says uncertainty should affect investment, and because investments tied back to the labor market should affect the labor market and also tied to growth, it should affect growth. So it seems like the pieces are coming together to right. say policy uncertainty is playing some role here. Right. Quantitatively important, do you think? Or is that still up for debate? Yeah. Let, let, me, let me slice that into two pieces. Then, uh, you know, one way to think about it is kind of policy uncertainty shocks. And let's think of the fiscal cliff or the debt ceiling is kind of 
politically manufactured policy uncertainty shocks. And maybe you want to see the Affordable Care Act as another uh, shock in that sense. Um, you know, the role of those as kind of causal agents. So here, let's be clear. You're saying maybe the Affordable Care Act is going to be good for business. Maybe it's going to be bad for business. Let's just put that on the side. But if we're uncertain whether it's going to get passed or how, what form it's going to take, or maybe we know it's going to pass and the form it's going to take, but we just have no experience. Or with whether it. the Supreme Court will throw out some piece of it. Or maybe we know even how it's going to fully be implemented, but we really don't know how it's going to actually work on the ground because we've never seen it before. That kind, that's the uncertainty you're talking about, not right. whether the regulation is good or bad. Any drag by the regulation itself falls under our previous topic of maybe we have too much regulation and that's slowing right. us down, but this is like uncertainty about regulation has got a further right. drag. And that, the, the, you just made the distinction very well and also it hints at why empirically it's difficult to isolate these uncertainty effects because they're typically tied up with these other effects that are happening at the same time. Right. So it, it takes a lot of work and some imagination uh, to try to figure out how you tease that apart, and that's still very much going on. Uh, and that's why I'm maybe hedging a little bit about what the magnitude of, it, of these effects are. I think my reading of the evidence is <clears throat> there, there's pretty good evidence that it matters somewhat to the downside, and so other things equal, you want to have a more stable policy environment. Um, do I think it's the main driver of, of weak economic performance in the last several years? No. Do I think it's a contributing factor? Yes. But, but I also wanted to make another point, which I think often gets lost in this discussion, these kind of discussions. It's not just whether we have these occasional um, episodes where the policy process itself manufactures one of these uncertainty shocks. It's also about how we design our institutions so that when they respond to other shocks, do they do it in a way that amplifies uncertainty or reduces it? And I think the clearest example of this in, in recent years on the macro scales, look what's been going on in Europe. They designed this, this uh, monetary union. And you know, without really laying the foundations institutionally in terms of an economic environment, in terms of a decision-making process to deal with major crises, or even, maybe not even so major, the Greek Minor debt crisis. crisis. You know, the Greek debt, Greece is a tiny part of Europe, and it, it caused an enormous amount of consternation and uh, economic harm within the European system because it was taking place within the, within the, uh, you know, the, the Eurozone that had been established. And to economists' credit, they, they, many of them, Martin Feldstein comes to mind, had warned uh, in advance of the creation of the common currency in Europe that, look, you, you, know, the, you really haven't laid the groundwork to make this work. And that's an, ex that's an example of an institutional environment that when a, big sh when, a, when a big or small shock came along, the institutional environment wasn't well equipped to respond, and we got all this uncertainty as a consequence. And it hadn't even laid out what its response would be. I mean, even if there were 10 different possible responses, it might have been better to just throw a dart and choose one of them <laughs> right. than to leave all 10 of them still on the table, which is right. where they are. Nobody knows what the heck they're gonna do. And you know that's kind of your point, is you know it's one thing to pick the best of the 10, Maybe second best of the 10 is better than just 
saying, well, I'll choose later, you know, right. and which is kind of the problem you have. So let's, let's, I want to tie this back, and I know in some of your other stuff you referenced uh, some advice that George Schultz, who used to be a dean here at the business school, is, you know, pretty well-known fellow who's a colleague of, of yours. I know you spent some time out at Hoover Institution, and he's a colleague out there, but he's a Chicago man by heart, I think. Even, yes. you know, he, he certainly, and he, when it comes to economics, thinks of himself as a Chicago guy, and we think of him as Chicago Yeah, he's got guy. a Chicago mindset. He does, for sure, even though he was, he has, you know, he hasn't officially been here in a long time, but just kind of shows you the effect that being at Chicago can have on somebody. Um, but George, he had some simple rules about policy and economic policy, and that's coming from a guy who's both has a lot of experience in economics, but also a lot of experience in government. And what, right. what was his policy advice, and how does it fit with what we just talked about? Well, he he, he had several kind of guidelines for policymakers, and I borrowed three of them and made them not kind of, rules, guidelines. Guidelines, yeah, and made them kind of the kickoff point and organizing principle for a speech. And so the the three, the three that guidelines that I barred were first, with respect to regulation, keep it simple, transparent, and then live with it. So that incorporates that incorporates the kind of you know more than one thing. There's simplicity, ease of understanding what it is, and the living with it part gets back to this kind of uncertainty. Okay, so so in other words, simple might be make it so it's easier to understand. So even if you have regulations. And that goes to the transparency too. Make them so that that's going to give less of a disadvantage to that new entrant. It's going to make it less burdensome on everyone because the costs of complying are going to be a lot lower. And the costs of complying are not just the cost of actually reading it. A big part of the cost from an economic standpoint is the activity that doesn't happen because you, you don't know really what's in those regulations and you're afraid of violating what's there or you do know and it would prevent you from doing that. So we, get, we have that part. So that seems to tie directly into almost everything we talked about right. so far. What was this? Right. What's number two? Then, the, then there's one basically about the tax code, which is parallel point. Keep the tax code as simple as possible. So again, it, with respect to both regulation and, t and taxes, you know, Schultz recognizes we need to have these things. And, but we should also recognize they have costs and let's try to minimize the cost. So, Keep the tax code as simple as possible. So this is not just like let's just have no taxes. Right. This is like, and it's not let's have low taxes. It's keep it simple. It's not about it's not about the level. It's about there might uh, be other reasons for those things. There might be other reasons, but that's not that's not the focus uh, of this particular guideline. Um, but again, consistency is the, that it's simple, which means low cost of compliance, and two, consistent that it's it's. You can count on whatever it's going to be. That's what it's going to be, and I can learn how to deal right. with it. And and it does touch on other things that you know we're probably not going to get into this conversation. Simplicity in in terms of kind of something like roughly uniform tax rates over a broad base of economic activity has many other economic virtues. That, that you know we don't really have time to talk about all. But I agree. I I was hearing that in there too, yeah. which is the idea basically that. And let me see if I can say it and then see if you agree, which is one of the problems with the tax code and what generated the complexity 
is we try to do favors for this activity relative to that one. And we say, well, let's tax everybody. And then Steve says, well, what about my oil business? I shouldn't get taxed so much. And I say, well, what about my corn growing business? Well, I should get a subsidy. And, and so we get this very complicated tax code that then distorts behavior much more than it would otherwise. Because if every activity is taxed, it's pretty hard to pull away from that and void the tax. Because wherever you go, you're going to get taxed. Here, well, geez, I, I'm going to move more over here where I'm less taxed and less over there. More distortions, more alterations of behavior. And so I think that's what we're talking about exactly. there. So that's part of number two as well. And what was number three? And number three is keep pol make policy predictable. Okay. It kind of you know ties into the first two, but it's broader than that. So, and I think you see this not only in Schultz's approach to economics, you see this in his approach to national security matters. If you read some of his stuff, he's very much about state your position. Make sure everybody knows what your position is, and then stick to it. And follow through. And follow through. Right. Okay, so that would, that would be taking some of these principles beyond what we might even think of as economic policy to policy more generally. But of course, in your uncertainty stuff, that's going to play in too, because national security and terrorism and all these other activities they generate uncertainty for businesses too. And the act. Those things generate uncertainty, and the potential responses to those things generate uncertainty. What's the government going to do if there's more terrorist activity? What regulations are they going to put in place? And we can see it already in terms of some of the hiring policies that have been changed and the documentation policies that employers have to engage in. And, you know, should I have a business that depends on immigrants? Well, how's the attitudes toward immigration going to change over time? Right. A very complicated picture. It is a complicated picture, and it's worth it's worth stating here. Maybe this is obvious, but probably worth stating. You can never get rid of all the uncertainty in the world, and there's always going to be some need to modify policies over time. But that doesn't. But having acknowledged that, that doesn't mean we want the political system to inject additional uncertainty into the economic environment the way it did with the with the debt ceiling crisis in the summer of 2011, the way it did with the fiscal cliff at late, late 2012. So that's kind of one key point. Those are, those are not necessary uh, sources of uncertainty in the economy. And then go back to this point we discussed very briefly about institutional design. Yes, we always have uncertainty in the environment, but the extent to which that uncertainty and shocks of kind of unforeseen character lead to bad outcomes depends a lot on how we design our institutions. And so those are things within our control that we can um, mitigate or amplify the effects of unforeseen shocks, the effects of uncertainty in the way we design our policies and institutions. So we need to think about how these institutions can respond and respond effectively. And from what you said earlier, though, it's also important that if they're responding to address a, a crisis of some type, that they avoid a bunch of collateral impacts, which would seem to generate uncertainty for a bunch of other people that don't, when we don't really need to do that. Right. And that's one of the problems I think we've had where regulation, regulatory creep has sort of gotten beyond the original goal here. We, maybe there was a real problem that needed to be addressed, but we addressed it with a very blunt instrument that then 
has these adverse right. consequences. Or, or the original problem is no longer present, but the regulatory apparatus lives on. It acquires a life of its own. Now, that's related to some of the stuff we talked about before, which is the difference between a diffuse cost where all of us are paying the taxes, but there's a relatively small number of people who are benefiting from the existence of this regulation. Those are hard regulations to get rid of, aren't they? Yes. Because the, you know, the 100,000 people that benefit are gonna fight pretty hard. The 100 million people who are paying the price each has about one thousandth as much as stake, and they're yeah. not gonna spend a lot of effort. Yeah, the ethanol subsidy to corn growers comes to mind. Seems like a pretty bad policy. Even on environmental grounds, it seems like a bad policy. Uh, and yet, it's incredibly hard to get rid of. For exactly that reason, right. concentrated benefits again. So, I guess one could go even further than back into sort of the political economy of why these regulations exist, why this uncertainty exists. So, but I guess I would take away from your lesson is, if I want to understand the, the labor market outcomes, I don't just want to limit myself to looking at the labor market. As an economist, I realize the other side of the equation, and you've realized the employer side is, is important. Employer side in terms of regulation and things to do with the labor market are important, but things that affect employers more broadly, right. like tax policy or regulatory policy, seem to play a big role and then finally, you talked about uncertainty over all those things plays yet a higher order role in, in, right. in terms of affecting things. So what's the prospect going forward? Are, are, have we been doing well over time? Are we getting better at these things at least? Or, or is it, what does the evidence say on that? That's a mixed picture. Um, you can point to things where I think we've gotten worse. Uh, I, I'll, I'll give, I'll give, I'll give a, kind of a good example. Good news and the bad news. Good news and bad, both of which I think are well documented. So the bad news one we touched upon earlier, um, this, the fiscal cliff episode we had in 2012, the kind of milder version of that we had in the end of 2010 with the expiration of Bush tax cuts, um, that's, that's somewhat new in U.S. policymaking history. And this not, brinkmanship. This brinksmanship over, over major tax rates at the last minute. And the debt ceiling crisis was another example of that to that extent where where people actually worry that the federal government might make del delayed payments on its outstanding treasury securities. So in that respect, you know, over a period of basically from the early 2000s through, you know, 2013, 2000, yeah, basically 2013, these things were getting worse. Hopefully we aren't gonna return to that, but that's a clear example of things getting worse. In an area where I think things have gotten better that partly by accident is trade policy. So, um, if you, so let's just, a little historical uh, example. If you go back to the, uh, you know, the stock market crash of 1929, that led to a lot of populist policy responses, including the Smoot-Hawley tariff, which was a disaster, you know, that because it, it raised tariffs in the U.S., made it more expensive for us to import, and it also caused other countries to retaliate, making it harder for us to export, and it was, you know, part of the global trade slowdown was initiated by this really boneheaded policy response. Fast forward to 2008, 2009, another, another huge financial crisis. There were some populist pressures, um, uh, you know, to let's, well, we gotta protect ourselves and let's, let's raise trade barriers. But the difference between the 1930s and now 
is through the GATT, the WTO, and a, you know, a rash of bilateral and regional trade policies, we've kind of tied our hands. It's just much, much harder to have a knee-jerk populist um, uh, tariff or quota put online now than it was decades earlier. So these populist pressures never amounted to much. I think that's kind of a, an interesting example of how by making binding commitments on itself, the government reduces the scope for stupid policy decisions so that, in the face of a crisis. So that might affect both the number of these regulations that are a drag and the uncertainty over those regulations. So that's an example of the <clears throat> institutional adjustment. Right, and, and I, wanted, I want to just mention one piece of evidence in this regard, because I said there's evidence that these things matter. So if you look at China's accession to the uh, World Trade Organization, and what it meant for the trade relationship with the U.S. is essentially no change in the tariff structure. Because they were already MFN status, multi, most favored nation trading partner. But nonetheless, in the, in the United States, when China ceded to the WTO and the immediate after that, trade growth goes up a lot. And when you don't see that in Europe. Now, why is that? Well, there's some interesting work by Kyle Handley and others that basically says the difference between the U.S. and Europe is that in the U.S., pretty much every Congress would say, well, are we gonna revoke China's MFN status because you know they're a bad actor in many respects and maybe they were, well, what did that do? It just, that's a lot of uncertainty. You're not going to invest in the kinds of things that are complements to trade between the United States and China. Once China became part of the WTO, the US Congress no longer had the option to essentially revoke tariffs back to smooth, put the tariffs back to smooth holly levels. So it took that uncertainty off the table. Now there's a first moment effect tied in there with the uncertainty effect, but this work by Kyle Hanley and others does a nice job of trying to separate those two out, finds they're both important in explaining the, the big growth in U.S. trade with China relative to European trade with China after the WTO. So the expected future tariffs were smaller and the uncertainty over future tariffs right. were smaller. That's the two effects you're That's talking the two about. Effects, right. Two things that you've talked about up till now, the, the general drag and then the uncertainty drag. In the case of China trade policy, we can see some measurable effects. Right. I think we're running out of time, but that's a great example though that I think brings both of those things to bear and shows how they're gonna affect the economy and ultimately, like we talked about, how it's gonna affect the labor market. So, just wanna say, Steve, thank you so well, much. Thank you. This, I think, has been a fun conversation. A lot great, of fun. Great, great talking to you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Economics Amplified on SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, and on our website. The Becker Friedman Institute for Research and Economics advances inquiry that illuminates our choices, our economy, our society, and our future. To learn more about the Institute, visit bfi.uchicago.edu.